presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz broadcasting on WBSM and also on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. And if you were listening on WBSM and Spooky TV just a few seconds ago, you heard the what we call the false start. Uh, basically, we started getting ready to go, and all of a sudden, Java, which is what we use to broadcast Spooky TV, just crapped out on us all of a sudden. So I think the computer took it upon itself to update it, but that means that we have the highest possible version of Java available to bring you this program tonight. And we'll talk about the paranormal as we do each and every Saturday night. Uh, it's good to be back in the studio here, Matt. You guys cleaned up pretty nice around here last week while we weren't here, Matt Costa. Oh, yeah, it was kind of uh, a new and different experience. Well, you had to uh, broadcast the show here with uh, with our friend Chris Balzano hosting the show, our content director from Florida. And uh, how did that go? When when all the uh, way from Florida, it, it 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 was like he was right in the room with me for a few seconds for a little while, yeah. <laughs> as long as the Skype worked. Yeah. But uh, it, it was a very good show, what I've heard of it. I still haven't had a chance to listen to the entire show, but you guys did a great job. And you did an awesome job at Haunted History Night uh, in cooking all the food, preparing the turkey dinner for Haunted History Night, which uh, was, was very nice. So thank you for that. And thank you to everybody who attended. It was a fantastic evening. We had, uh, we had quite a few uh, attendees. And we quite had a few. Quite, we had some media there covering it, and uh, we had a special guest stop by, too. Yep. Amy Bruni from Sci-Fi's Ghost Hunters just came on by. You know, she's a friend of ours, a friend of Jeff Belanger's, and she knew the event was going on. She wanted to come check it out. So did um, Vegan Mel or Melissa Seagal showed yep, up yep. as well. So uh, just goes to show you, you never know who might show up to a spooky South Coast event. And uh, we do have another event planned, uh, as we announced last night while we were watching Ghost Adventures from the Lizzie Boyd in Bed and Breakfast, uh, which myself and Matt Moniz were on. Uh, we did have that brief little cameo. If you missed us, you can go back and watch it again. You'll see. You'll you'll see Moniz's beard either way, <laughs> and that beard is something to behold. If you're watching on Spooky TV, you can see it for yourself right there. There you go. But uh, you know, we we uh, announced while we were on Ghost Adventures that our Dead of Winter event 2012 will happen on February 25th at the Lizzie Boyd and Ben and Breakfast. For just 125 dollars, you can come have dinner, hear some lectures, and investigate the. Lizzie Boyd and Bed and Breakfast with the Spooky Crew and Jeff Belanger. And uh, we're going to have probably even more fun than we had the last time that we had Dead of Winter because a lot of the people who are coming back are people who went to Haunted History. So they're people who kind of have their feet wet now in investigation. There's still plenty of room open for first-time investigators too, but you've got the chance to uh, really get into the meat of the haunting at Lizzie Boyd's. And as you saw in Ghost Adventures... Uh, there's some pretty dark stuff going on. So, But there's only eight tickets left. We had 25 tickets to sell. Only eight? Only eight remaining. Le- in left after 24 hours of being for sale. Not yet. It's been on for about about 25 hours now. Tickets have been for sale, and there's only eight left. So if you want to get some, you have to get some right away. Yeah, do it quick. And if you go to my Facebook, 
uh, Tim Weisberg on Facebook. That's the easiest place to find the link. It's also it's on ghostvillage.com slash lb slash deadofwinter.html. Or you can go to jeffbelanger.com. And it's uh, on his calendar right on the front page down the side. You'll see Dead of Winter. We, it's, it's just it's been happening so fast we haven't had a chance to get the link up on SpookySouthCoast.com. But uh, you can get your tickets now. Please do because, as I mentioned, there's only eight left. And uh, later on during the news break, I'll check my email to see if we've sold some more because uh, it's, it's, you're running out of chances. There's, only, uh, there's two rooms already gone, too. Two rooms out of the eight have already been claimed, too. So it's $125 for the ticket to the event. And then for an extra $25 a person, you can get a room on the third floor. Or for an extra $50 a person, you can get a room on the second floor. And the rooms are on a first-come, first-served basis. So so it's 150 to what, 175 Yeah, so for $175, you know, you and, like, a couple of friends, you can have, a, have the murder room. The murder room's still open, as far as I know. So, And uh, I personally have had some good experiences in that room. So, so hurry up and uh, get your tickets. Again, on my Facebook on jeffbelanger.com and at ghostvillage.com slash lb slash deadofwinter.html. So we're hoping that uh, we're hoping we can get the link up on spookysouthcoast.com, but we may not even have to. It might sell out before the end of the show. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get right into the discussion tonight. We have two authors that are going to be joining us tonight, and they're both going to be talking about different types of books. Uh, our first author has written a fiction story. And our second author is telling a very true story that is amazing uh, about the haunted houses where he's the haunted house where he lived. So we're going to get into all kinds of strange things tonight, just in time for the Halloween holiday, which is coming up on us. So we don't know where it's going to go, really, and that's the, our favorite kind of show. Joining us now, all the way from across the pond, Wendy Callahan is a dark urban and steampunk fantasy author, pagan writer, priestess, green hedge witch, homeschooler, and genealogist from Massachusetts. She is the author of Dead Wrong and the forthcoming books The Gossamer Gate and Heart and Fire. She currently lives in England with her husband, son, uh, and two cats, one of whom is certifiably demonic. And you can keep up with her work at wendycallahan.blogspot.com. And she's joining us now on Skype. How are you tonight, Wendy? Um, I'm doing really well, although it is morning here. So I, I've drunk quite a bit of tea in hopes that, that I don't sound like a zombie on your show. <laughs> there you go. And the tea over there is stronger, right? It, it's more delicious. I'll, I'll tell you that. Okay. Well, there you go. Well, what's it like though having to move from New England to actual England? I mean, what's the differences between where you grew up and where you are now, in, in terms of how it influences your work as a writer? England is really quaint compared to New England. Um, there's there's a lot more sheep here, which really doesn't affect my work actually but there's these uh there's gorgeous ruins in many many places and it's just such a beautiful place that you could really look anywhere for inspiration here it's very green land um very kind of a subtle energy to it compared to back home i think back home in new england it's um a little more hectic because we have more by way of cities and development and such and where I live, it's just a tiny little village outside of one of the air bases, and it's very rural. But it's it's peaceful, it's nice, and it inspires me to just kind of relax and work. Yeah, but the food is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt, Matt Moniz has been out there, so uh, I'm sure he I'm sure he still remembers some of the meals that he was oh, fed. Only country I've been to that could screw up a pizza. Well, <laughs> all the places to get a pizza, why would you? 
risk. It was it. the only thing open. Okay. That makes you sense. come here for the fish and chips, not the pizza. Well, that was about the only <laughs> thing Actually, that I found really, really, really good. He I went there for the sheep. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> what? What? No, actually, I was there for the. You like cross to make cotton? Yeah. yeah, there you go. All right. Well, uh, of course, though, your book "Dead Wrong" takes place back here. Yes, it takes place in Bridgewater, where I grew up. And it's uh, it's very interesting because it's uh, it's a vampire tale, but it's not the typical. Uh, you know, the story that we read where it's coming from the human's point of view, you know, kind of the, the, the Dracula-type stories where, you know, we're, we're seeing through the human's eyes and we're seeing the vampire as the villainous figure. This is a little bit of a twist on that. It is. It's definitely, it's it's less of a story about the vampires and more, it's more a tale of vampire slayer politics gone wrong and how power corrupts. Well, we know that for sure. But uh, now, when you were putting together this story, I mean, what influences uh, did you draw on uh, to, for, to create your vampire society? Because it, is, it, it does have some similarities to some other stories that we've read, but it also takes things in a very different uh, way as well. Well, um, actually, the story is inspired by real-life uh, events in Bridgewater. Um, we were role-playing. We were playing the game Chill. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's kind of old. No. We were playing chill one night at the comic book store in Bridgewater. Harry Dogs used to be the store where I would just hang out after school. And um, one evening, as we were playing this game, I was actually looking at my friends who were playing Vampire Hunters going, wait a second. You know, I could kind of envision these guys in a story. Mm -hmm. And as far as creating the society, I don't know. I just kind of pull stuff right out of my head. I'm When I write, I just kind of write by the seat of my pants. I don't plot out anything like a lot of writers do. So it just sort of happened as far as the society went. Yeah, I think I can count on one hand the number of times I've ever written a rough draft in my life. But that's, I mean, the good stories, that's how they come. They just flow right out of you. That's basically how I write. Because if I sit and try to overthink everything, I think it's harder to get into a creative flow. Whereas if I just sit and write what's in my head, it comes out... And I get pretty much what I'm looking for in that first draft. And then I just kind of go and build on it through the second and third drafts. Well, but it must be hard, though, to write a vampire story in you know, today's literary world because there are so many out there. I mean, in some ways it's good because it, you have a built-in audience that are looking for these types of stories. But at the same time, you do have to kind of carve out your niche. That's true, uh, especially with uh, fantasy of any genre, including the subgenres. Uh, there's really a smaller group looking, a uh, group of people looking for that, and I have been rejected because my stories are not romantic enough. I don't write romance. I keep telling people I don't write romance just because I'm a chick. I don't do that. Well, I have to say, and I'm going to tread carefully here because uh, we are on uh, public airwaves here, but. Uh, <laughs> Right away, I mean, I start reading the story, and I get two pages in, and I see the C-word, of which, you know, I'm a pretty big fan. The male C-word, I mean, now. And uh, there's, you know, the fact that that pops up in the, on the second page of the story, that kind of lets you know that you're in for something a little bit different than the, the current vampire stories. I hope it does. You know, the relationship between the two characters is lust. It's not love. It's more of the main character going, you know what, you're a part of my past. Maybe if I do this, I'll just forget you. And, of course, the reader doesn't know that off the bat. I mean, now, now they do if they buy the book. 
But I, I've gotten a lot of credit from others, from readers, for the twists and turns the story took for being a short story. So that that makes me happy. Where they're like, "Wait a second, why is this happening?" And they get to the end, and it all fits. So that pleases me. It is. It is hard to kind of please everybody when when you're putting out a story that is you know your own, but at the same time dealing with a genre that people want to read about. You know, I can't imagine what it must have been like for somebody like Stephen King to decide, okay, now I'm going to write a zombie book, now I'm going to write a vampire book, now I'm going to write this, and still be able to stay true to his storytelling. And and that's got to be the same thing that you have to deal with, where, you know, you're trying to tell your own story, and you have to kind of not worry about people's preconceived notions about what your characters might be. I think that not thinking about preconceived notions, but rather just going with your vision is better because you might get a more original story that way or uh, come up with a new angle that way. It's really hard to do anything original these days. I certainly never set out to write too many vampire stories because the market is just so oversaturated and most of my focus is on the steampunk fantasy. But I'm glad that I wrote something that was at least a little different as far as vampires are concerned. <laughs> well, you mentioned steampunk, and that's something that I think a lot of our audience might not be familiar with. Uh, why don't you describe to them what, what steampunk is all about? Uh, steampunk is basically that um, idea of... It's usually set in the Victorian era, and it's that idea that society has actually gone a bit further with technology. While a lot of the stories are based around a society that's developed around steam power, like locomotives and factories and such, um, it's got that science fiction aspect to it where you can take things a little bit further. You can add these interesting uh, gadgets and such that wouldn't fit into Victorian society as we know it, yet they kind of just add something interesting and new to the story. Uh, There's a lot of stories out there, for example, with automatons, um, you know, just whole armies of men who've been created out of gears and engines and yet here it is 1891 england and you would not see something like that there and it's fun steampunk's a lot of fun because you can play with inventions that would be possible but hadn't been thought of yet think of like league of extraordinary gentlemen type movie with a little bit more technical edge Yes, that's exactly what it is, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and movies that are very similar to that. Well, but and the good thing, too, about steampunk in, in this area is, you know, we have a connection to a lot of Victorian-era, uh, you know, sites. So we have uh, the Victorian Mansion and Garden, and we yeah. have Lizzie Borden, Bed and Breakfast. You know, we have all these places that are of that era. Uh, and it's not really that hard for us to find, you know junk around here that we can <laughs> convert into steampunk stuff. So I, I, I understand why the why it's big here, but it, you know, other parts of the country and of course we have a an international audience, you know, they might not know. So that's just why I kind of wanted to touch upon that a little bit, but it it is it's got to be fun as a writer to write about steampunk because you can create all these strange things and it doesn't matter if they never did exist because they can within the world of your story. Yeah, just um you know, read some Jules Verne, read mm-hmm. You know, his stories, and that's kind of the original place where things like these concepts of inventions that quite quite weren't in their time started. I mean, I, I love reading all the original sci-fi books, which people maybe won't think of them as sci-fi in that way, but they are. Now, is one of the things that you touch upon in your writing in the future, have you given any thought to, uh, you know, ghost stories and trying to write true horror? Not true horror, but like, you know, actual horror. 
Mm-mm. You know, that's a good question. Back when I was a student at BR, I used to write quite a bit of horror. I would be scribbling in my notebooks about some pretty awful things. Um, I'm not you sure to do if I want to go teachers, the horror probably, route. Yeah. Well, I just wonder because I see that a lot of people who leave this area, they are still kind of haunted by it. And I know that you've actually had some experiences here growing up uh, in the Bridgewater Triangle. I've been hearing about uh, some of these stories that you might have to share with us. I think the most memorable thing is um, my father always liked driving the back roads. And I don't know if my sister recalls this story. Uh, I was in the passenger seat of the car and we were driving through the Bridgewater Triangle and it was nighttime, and this thing, I don't, it looked like a cat, and at least it was cat-like, came kind of barreling at the car and whacked its head, like, charged right into the passenger side wheel, and I was freaking out because I thought, oh my gosh, we're going to kill an animal. The thing just went bounding back into the woods like nothing had happened to it, and uh-huh. I'm looking going, wait a sec, was that real? And I was pretty freaked out because you don't usually see something like that every day. But it didn't seem like it was hurt, and I, I, I don't even know if it really existed or what at this point. And, and it was a large cat, like, like what would you? It, could you kind of compare it size wise to another animal? Uh, it was pretty big, as I would say, it was probably the size of maybe like a raccoon or larger, and it just—I don't know, man. I thought we were going to run it over. What well, color was it? That's a good question. This was years and years ago. This is the early 90s. Well, I mean, it is an area that's known for strange creatures. I mean, there are uh, creatures that exist within the Bridgewater Triangle that might not be seen outside of it. Some of yeah. them some of them could just be lost to uh, modern-day society, and some of them could just be, you know, some sort of dimensional being that can only exist within the boundaries of the Triangle. Or it could be an exotic pet that got loose. The look at the case of the wallaby that we had in Wareham. You we know, had, a, be, we yeah. had a wallaby in Wareham? Ask Carlson Chops Woods. He was one of the people that had to help wrangle the thing up. People kept saying, we don't have kangaroos or anything like that around here. Somebody had a pet wallaby, and it got loose and uh, was, I think, actually found down in Great Neck. That's what <laughs> happens when you let them sell didgeridoos at King Richard's Fair. They start thinking <laughs> they can have wallabies I in I miss house. King Richard's Fair. <laughs> well, I mean, we, we've got uh, some pretty pretty cool things around here like king richard's fair but i mean i guess being over there you probably have a little bit more direct connection to the renaissance still there oh yep sorry okay sorry uh we do have the phone line is ringing uh we can see if that's a call for you uh good evening you were on spooky south coast with our guest wendy callahan no okay maybe not all right good evening you're on spooky south coast with uh wendy callahan how are you Hello? All right, you can just hang that up, Matt. This, this has been happening all night on that line. All right, if you would like to call in with any questions for Wendy, feel free to do so. one 996 1420 or 508-996-0500. You can also jump in the chat room. Uh, you can go to Spooky South Coast, click on the Spooky TV link, and you'll see the chat room pop up there along with the in-studio cameras. And you can also email us, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com or text us at 508-444-2661. So plenty of ways to get a hold of us if you have any questions for Wendy. Um, now, Wendy, there's a story, too, about a, a haunted spot on an airbase in Korea that you spent some time on? Yes, I lived um, on Osan Air Base in Korea from 2009 to 
It's probably just a little Skype dropout. Still there? Oop, can you hear me okay? Yeah, sometimes the Skype can- tends to drop out a little bit. That's what happens when, you know, we're getting thousands of miles out of this connection, so we can't really complain. I know, right? I'm very grateful for Skype. But if you can hear me okay. Sure, we can. Yeah, no, I was living on Osan Air Base. It was 2009 to 2010. I was there for 15 months with my first husband, and um, which sounds weird because I can't believe I'm on husband number two. In, but there's a place on Osan Air Base called Bayonet Hill. It's hill number 180, and a really uh, rather famous battle took place there during the Korean War. It was a hand-to-hand bayonet charge with you know hand-to-hand combat and grenades. And there are a lot of spooky happenings on that hill. People have heard whispers. People have been pushed up and down the hill. And I had to walk past it every Saturday night between my apartment and the dorms where I was playing Dungeons and Dragons with my friends. And I had friends who would not walk past that hill with me. They, we would meet up at the chapel for Pagan Group and then walk over the dorms to play D&D. And they were like, no, we're not walking past that hill. I I used to kind of feel like I was being watched when I walked past it. And this was like midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning that I was walking by it. And I was fortunate enough to have one friend who would walk me home quite a bit. But I never really minded walking by it alone, even though I kind of felt like somebody was watching me walk. Sure, yeah. So, but it's a pretty creepy area. Well, and also, uh, didn't you spend some time in a haunted house over here? Well, let's see. Uh, one of my good friends who lives up in Springfield, or he lives up in Wilbraham, rather, his house is quite haunted. My house in Delaware that my first husband and I owned together was definitely haunted. My sister and my awesome nephews and nieces are actually about to move into that house. <laughs> what kind of stuff can they expect? I'm kind of sorry for them. What, what can they expect to have happen to them there? The... That house, we had just really a few weird little things happen. Um, The two back bedrooms, doors would kind of open and close on their own. Uh, People would see, you know, just shadows passing through there, even if they were alone in the house. Um, So we'll see what happens to to April and her kids and her husband while they're there. (laughs) Hopefully nothing too bad. I think if anything tries to get too rough, Derek can take care of them. But uh, now that's it. That's interesting, though, because the story we're going to hear about in the second hour from our, our second guest is about a much darker experience. But it, it sounds like, you know, nothing was uh, was too bad for you to have to endure in that house. No, it, it wasn't really bad. And the thing is, a lot of my friends are much more sensitive to spirits and energy than I am. And I always used to kind of complain about that and say, oh, I'm terrible because I can't sense these things. But then if you think about it, if you don't really feel them as strongly, then they can't make you feel like sick or nauseated or anything like that either. Because mm. like I said, I had friends who wouldn't walk past that hill back in Korea because it would make them feel just kind of, you know, out of it. So I guess I'm lucky in a way that I'm so insensitive to that, that sort of thing. Well, I mean, I'm telling you, you should definitely start looking into ghosts as, as subject matter for your books because it seems like you've had some some pretty good experience with them. And, you know, I think if you can humanize them the way that you have vampires, you know, it can make for a pretty successful story. 
I'll have to think about that. I've got two trilogies going on right now, so I'll have to think about adding ghost stories into the mix. Well, let's talk a little bit about how you've been putting these books out. I mean, have these been something that you've been doing uh, on your own? No, I have uh, three different uh, publishers that have been doing it, and they are doing a great job, so I'm happy. But at the same time, uh, they they are going in both the traditional print format and the ebook format, which has got to be great for you because so many more people are accessing these stories uh, through the electronic format these days. That's true, and I have to admit that I refuse to buy an e-reader, but publishers, uh, both big and small, cannot ignore that e-reader market out there because people are enjoying the convenience of being able to just grab those tiny little gadgets and go as opposed to like hauling a book to a doctor's appointment you know for the waiting room or whatever it may be so i kind of think ebooks are i i know they're here to stay see my wife's against them because she's very into the the feel of a book excuse me the weight of a book the smell of a book and i'm kind of the same way but at the same time you know i have to read a lot of books for this show and i find it's a lot easier when i can just plug them all into the e-reader and just carry one with me all the time I mean, I've got the entire Stephen King library, like, just on my e-reader. Not to mention autographs. That's true. Nobody can really sign an e-book. <laughs> That's true. And I've gotten a surprising amount of requests for signed books. And I, I still have all my books. In fact, the price of hardcovers is really being driven down on Amazon. So since I'm like your wife, I prefer the weight and feel of a book. I mean, you can't, I guess you could take an e-reader in the bathtub with you but it might be kind of dangerous yeah, just don't drop and i just keep exactly i, I tend so when i, I read in the regular book. when i read in the tub i tend to nod off and the next thing you know like the book is down in the water so that's it wouldn't work well with me with my uh with my nook but <laughs> <laughs> at least an ebook can or, or a book can kind of dry out and the pages might be okay if you don't mess with it <laughs> so do you find uh while you're while you're living there in england do you find that you want to kind of uh, maybe explore some of their history too and, and mix that in with a lot of what you're writing about or are you just sticking with what you know and, and keeping things based in, in Massachusetts? Well, the book that's coming out um, at the end of the year, The Gossamer Gate, is based in Massachusetts. It's based in Northampton. But the writing I'm doing now does tend to have, does tend to be set in Britain. Um, the, the other trilogy I'm working on is set in Victorian Britain and i I do find that I want to write about this place. It's just, it's really pretty. It's nothing I've ever seen before. So I enjoy being able to go outside and look at a house and, you know, describe it accurately because here I am. So, yeah, I, I do find that the location where I live does influence, you know, the, the writing. All right, I think we're going to try this phone line again. Hopefully it's a call for you. Uh, we'll see. And if it, uh, if it is, we may have to relay the question to you. Good evening, we're on Spooky South Coast with Wendy Callahan. Do you have a question? Okay, we're just not going to answer that line again when it rings tonight. Nobody wants to talk to me. <laughs> oh, well, what it is is sometimes, you know, people are calling in and they don't realize, you know, what the show is. You know, and they're, they're probably calling for some other reason or to talk about something else. So they're just waiting for the subject to change. But we're here to talk about the paranormal all the way to midnight, so... Uh, you're kind of stuck. One, one thing I want to ask you about is it says in your bio that you're a green hedge witch. What exactly is that? Um, well, I'm pagan. I pretty much grew up that way. Um, a green witch specifically is somebody who tends to work with the earth versus doing more ceremonial magic like Wiccans do. 
Okay, so I mean, it's, but it's it's the way that you grew up too. I mean, you've been pagan throughout your life. Pretty much, my father is fairly agnostic, and my mom wasn't in the picture, so nobody was telling me what to believe mm-hmm. or what to think. I actually, I actually didn't know what Christianity was until I was about eighteen. And I said to my father one day, I want to be a witch. And he went out, bought me my first Scott Cunningham book. And I said, yep, this is right. And I've just been doing it ever since. Now, what about your sister? Were you able to uh, convince her to to stay pagan or to stick with pagan beliefs? (laughs) April is, you know, she does her own thing. We, our family isn't super pushy about religion or anything. Is that what you just asked yeah. about my sister? Yeah, because... Uh, you, or did I get the sound wrong? No, no. I, I should disclose here that I did actually... I went to high school with your sister and with her husband. So uh, when when uh, she first mentioned uh, online that uh, you had written this story, I said, well, there's somebody who fits in uh, with the theme of our show and the kind of things that we talk about all the time and would be an interesting guest to talk to uh, for our listeners. But at the same time, it makes me st- step back and think about how... You know, it's kind of all come together for us. It's kind of weird how so many parts of our lives here, the three of us hosting this show, have been touched in a way that it all comes back to what we're doing now. And I guess being pagan, you would believe that that, that's kind of how things work. Yeah, I do believe to some extent in fate and things kind of just working out. I mean, I honestly never expected to get divorced and remarried in the span of a week. But I met somebody in Korea, fell in love, and I never expected to marry two guys in the Air Force. I never expected to live in England, which is where I always wanted to live. But, well, when I was married to my first husband, he was debating going back on active duty in the Air Force. He was in the reserves at the time when we got married in 1993. And he said, you understand that if I go back on active duty... Um, I'll have to get deployed. I may have to do one year remote away from you. And I said, I don't mind as long as I have a baby. We, um, he got back in the Air Force in 1999 on active duty. We moved to Dover, Delaware. We lived there for 10 years. And I got pregnant with my son in, uh, in the beginning of 2002. And a month after we found out I was pregnant, he found out he was going to Korea the following year. And he said, wait a minute, you said you wouldn't mind if I went away for a year as long as you had a baby. And I said, see how that works? (laughs) Well, I mean, but everybody's on a certain path, and it seems like your path has led to uh, the creation of these stories and and being able to share them with people. Have you been getting a lot of uh, response from readers? Yeah, I have a lot of uh, people who like the story, but they wish it was longer. Well, I mean, that's the challenge, though. The challenge is to uh, to find exactly where you've told enough of the story and then have them come back wanting more. So it sounds like you've found just the right, uh, the right hook to try to get them to come back and read more of uh, some of the adventures. I hope so. And, you know, I may or may not uh, make a longer story or, or write a series on these characters. We, we will see. It depends on how many more people pester me about it. <laughs> and it's kind of like one of those things where if, if the character feels like there's more story to be tell, uh, told, then you'll know it. That's how I feel. I feel like writing is its inspiration. Like, like we were talking about earlier, I don't plot it out. If it comes to me, I, I just do it. 
All right. Well, we definitely wish you luck in all your future writing and all your future endeavors. And everybody can follow along at wendycallahan.blogspot.com. And that's where you can find it. Can you, can you purchase the book from there? I know you can get it from Amazon. That's correct. You can also get it directly from the publisher, uh, Damnation Books. And if you get it from the publisher, they have all the different e-reader formats. You can get it on Amazon for Kindle or in, in paperback. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to let you go and get to bed now because <laughs> it's much, much yes, it's it's early, actually. It's 4 a.m. Yeah. So uh, get, get some well, rest, I'm... and then you can start cranking out some more stories. That's definitely going to happen. All right. Thank, thank you so much, Thanks Wendy. So much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Have a great night. You too. All right. Why don't we uh, take a quick break? When we come back, I'm going to tell you some more uh, about some more upcoming Halloween events that are happening in the area that you can check out. And then coming up in hour number two, we'll talk with Patrick Meachin about his book, 225th Street. And this is going to be about the true haunting that he experienced. And uh, you're not going to believe this story when you hear it, but it actually happened to him. And it's uh, what he had to endure, I wouldn't wish on anybody. Imagine living in back-to-back homes infested with the demonic. So we'll have all that and more coming up in just a few minutes here in Spooky South Coast. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. Remember, if uh, you want to get your tickets to Dead of Winter 2012, it's happening February 25th at the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast. Uh, last I checked, there were only eight left out of the 25 that went on sale last night. So uh, go to uh, my Facebook page or go to uh, jeffbelanger.com or ghostvillage.com slash lb slash deadofwinter.html uh, to grab those tickets. But uh, there are a couple other Halloween-type events that I want to tell everybody about. Uh, as we get closer here to the holiday, there's going to be all kinds of cool things happening. And something that is happening next weekend is something I'm going to be attending, the Ghost Train at Edaville Railroad. It's uh, on October 29th and 30th at 5.30 p.m., 6 p.m., and 8 p.m. Tickets are $13 a person and are available on edaville.com. But uh, here's what they have to say. Something seriously strange is going on out in the bogs at night, and we're inviting the public to experience Edaville's all-too-real ghost story in the first-ever after-hours excursion. Take a 40-minute train ride deep into the park's far reaches on rails we haven't run for years. On the way, learn about Edaville's enigmatic founder. Sorry, I don't know why I'm stumbling over that. Carver's own Willy Wonka of trains and his evidently enduring connection to these cranberry bogs he eventually died in. We'll get to that in a second, Moniz. Hold on. Mm -hmm. The park and all amusement rides will be closed for the ghost train, so just come for the train ride. Please leave the young kids at home. Since we're not sure what you're encounter out there from night to night, we can't guarantee anyone's safety. So it's ages 8 and up, and under 14 must be accompanied by an adult. But again, that's the 29th and the 30th, 5.30 p.m., 6 p.m., 8 p.m., $13 a person at Edaville. I haven't, I'm working on a story on this for the Standard Times, so I will talk to them about where they, they are mentioning that Ellis Atwood died in the cranberry bogs and we know that that's not true yeah. from uh from what we've been told it actually happened in the boiler room of the what is now the museum but yeah. 
We'll talk a little bit more, hopefully, about that next week uh, after I've had a chance to speak with the people from Edaville. Uh, something else I want to let you know about, the Village PTA in Wareham. They're having a Halloween pancake breakfast on October 30th. That's next Sunday from 9 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. at the Elks Lodge in Wareham. Pancakes, breakfast meats, coffee, juice, milk, four, $4 a person. Only $4 a person. That's cheaper than the one that you guys had over at the uh, Masonic Lodge there at the end of the day. Yep. And uh, $15 for a family. Costume contest for the kids, prizes, and other activities. Information or questions should be directed to Jennifer Weisberg at Jennifer underscore Grawl at Yahoo.com. Or uh, uh, you can get a hold of me. Just email me, Tim, at SpookySouthCoast.com, and I can give you more of the information as well. But, again, that's next Sunday, October 30th, from 9 a.m. to 11.30 p.m. at the Elks Lodge in Wareham. Just $4 a person, $15 for a family. We have about uh, two and a half minutes before the news break here, Moniz. But one thing that I did want to mention is when we were at Haunted History Night, uh, on last Saturday night, when we have everybody that's excited to come and investigate the Fearing Tavern, which they'd been hearing so much about, but we also had three buildings that had never been investigated before. The Old Methodist Meeting House, the Union Chapel, and the One Room Schoolhouse. And at 11 o'clock, when we had our break, <laughs> Moniz comes right up to me and pulls me aside and says, Dude, that One Room Schoolhouse is really haunted. It actually was. What was interesting is uh, I had never been in the building before. I didn't really know much more of its history than there was a one-room schoolhouse that used to be um, out on Great Neck, I believe. Is, yeah, it was yeah, out on Great, Great Neck Road. Yep. Great Neck Road. And they moved it and the uh, the church, actually, the, the Methodist church there, because they were, you know, built in the 1800s and they were in peril of being, you know, yeah. lost in the Martian Sea. And they, they, thank God the town took the foresight to to move them because they are pretty and now they're all right in that little yep. lot with the meeting house yep and um so what was happening in that schoolhouse well what was interesting is the it wasn't just a schoolhouse as things were back in the day in small towns they they would have you know multi-service things mm-hmm. in the building it wasn't just a school it was also the post office and a guy in the first group was sitting there he's like all of a sudden he's like hearing what sounds like somebody you know doing a rubber stamp type thing and the uh Docent said, yeah, there used to be the post office in there. And then second group comes in, hey, I just saw somebody moving in that room. And it's like there was activity going on in there all night. Well, coming up uh, in the second hour, I'll tell you a little bit about some of the strange things that was happening in the Fearing Tavern, which is where I was stationed all night, including our friend from Lizzie Borden's talking to me a little bit. So uh, we'll get into that. And we'll also be joined by our guest for the second hour, Patrick Meachin, about his book, 225th Street, the true story of the haunting that he had to endure uh, when he lived at 225th Street. So we'll talk about all that more coming up in hour number two as we inch ever closer to the Halloween holiday. Stay tuned for more here on Spooky South Coast coming up after the news. This is usually the part when people start screaming. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. I'm not afraid. You will be. Okay. 
I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen. Welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And uh, we are broadcasting on Spooky TV as well as on WBSM. You can go to SpookySouthCoast.com if you want to see our ugly mugs. And uh, that's that's really the way to go because, you know, if you want a good Halloween fright, these cameras are the ones that are going to do it. But before we get into it with our second guest of the evening, Patrick Meachin, about his book, 225th street uh we're going to talk a little bit more about what went on at haunted history night last saturday night because i had pretty interesting experiences that were happening in the fearing tavern uh with the different groups that were coming in now we did it like one of our usual events we broke down into small groups and we rotated uh, and we rotated from building to building and each time there was a group in the tavern itself like and i'm talking in the tavern part of the fearing tavern we were conducting uh some ghost box sessions and we were talking with these spirits, and we kept asking them why they were there. And every time we made a connection with something that kept coming back with answers, we asked why they were there. It would say dead. So, okay. That's pretty interesting. Uh, then in another instance, we had a woman who made a connection with her father-in-law who had passed away not that long ago. I'm sorry, stepfather who had passed away not that long ago. And he was saying something to her over the device. And then we brought in spirit medium Tiffany Rice... Uh, she was on another floor at the time, but we brought her down and had her give a reading like right away to see if the spirit was still there. And uh, she was actually able to come up, pretty much verify exactly what was being said over the box just a few minutes before, which was really cool. And then things took a little bit of a dark turn. Uh, at one point, I was talking to a spirit supposedly over this device, and uh, I said to her, you know, what is your purpose here? And it comes back saying evil. All right. And it kept referring to me by name. It kept saying Tim. So I was like, do I know you from somewhere? You're not from here, are you? Where, where do I know you from? And it came through and it said, Lizzie's. So I said, <laughs> all right, listen, you don't belong here. This isn't where you belong. So I turned off the box. I ended that session. But uh, it just goes to show that uh, whatever it is that Lizzie Boyden's can apparently reach out and touch someone. <laughs> through these devices. So uh, that's just one of the things that you might have to endure if you buy a ticket to Dead of Winter 2012, uh, which are on sale now. But uh, it's it's definitely strange that uh, this thing reached out. And it was at a time when there wasn't a lot of people around during this session. There was only a few people around. Uh, so it kind of like knew just the right time to, to get me. But we did have some cool stuff happening. We had a lot of people with personal experiences. There are some evidence photos and EVP clips and things rolling in. And uh, eventually we're going to just have to do an episode, I think, where we start going over a lot of this stuff because a lot of it is very intriguing. If you did attend and you have some evidence that you want to share with us, just email it to us, spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com because the Wareham Historical Society, uh, who are very pleased with not only you know the money that we helped them raise but also the, uh, the character and the behavior of everybody that was attending the event, uh, they want to have everybody back to share their findings with the general body of the historical society. So I'm not bragging here, but we made more for them last Saturday night than they made all summer doing tours of the Fearing Tavern, and that makes me feel good. That makes me feel real good. We have a great 
core of people that come to these things. And we thank them all. And, we, and what's, it's not just that they come, but they want to come again and again to all of our events. So we're going to keep trying to put on you know, what we hope are top-notch events as long as you're willing to uh, – to keep enduring listening to us because, <laughs> you know, it gets boring listening to, to us all the time. Jeff's always great, but. Well, this also was a great inroad with the historic society because they're now going to be opening up even more buildings mm-hmm. that are under their control to us, places that have never had investigations as well. And to me, that's what I live for is being able to get into a place for the first time to be able to investigate it myself. Nobody else has been there, so I'm I'm new t- new territory, new New digs. You know, I, 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 I can get into that. We have probably 10 different places that have contacted us about possibly doing events there. And I said, well, gee, I don't know. We don't really want to oversaturate things. We don't want to be doing too much of this because we don't want people to get sick of us saying all the time, hey, come spend money to come hang out with us. But it, that's not what it is. I mean, it's well, we're doing these as fundraisers for the show, which we don't get paid for, and also for these places which are having us. Well, the other thing, we also keep the prices that we do these things for at a very reasonable level mm, a lot of people have uh been to these things before and they've said you know we definitely put on the biggest bang for the buck i mean the food alone is what most people can't stop talking about never mind the opportunities we give them versus what they paid for it's like i've known people that went to other well-known events mm-hmm. For much, much more money and got far less. Well, so. the prices might be raised on our event soon just so we can fly up Chris Balzano from Florida. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to start charging $300 a ticket just so we can bring up Chris Balzano. Now, but uh, in all seriousness, tickets are 125 for Dead of Winter. And so if you want to get those, uh, definitely do that now. Why don't we take one last break for tonight? And while we're doing that, we'll get our next guest on the phone, Patrick Meachin, and we'll talk about 225th Street. The experiences that he endured there are going to make it very hard for you to sleep tonight. I promise. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. It's funny, isn't it? How everybody in town's afraid of you. What's going to happen tomorrow is going to happen. And all your worry in the world isn't going to change that. Spooky South Coast is back. All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz, broadcasting on WBSM and on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. And we are joined now on the phone by, well, actually via Skype, with uh, Patrick Meachin, the author of 225th Street. He's had the unique experience of living in two consecutive yet unrelated haunted houses. 225th Street is the second of those houses. His book details not only his own personal experiences during the three months he lived there, but also his in-depth investigation of the history of the house and haunt. The book is true to real life and contains no Hollywood hype. It's a haunted house story of truly biblical proportions. And the second book, which we'll talk about, too, during the course of the discussion, is Nightmare in Holmes County. That's due out in 2012. It's the prequel to 225th Street. And uh, you can get these books at crownofthornspublishing.com. And the Kindle versions are available at Amazon.com. But now Patrick joins us on the phone. Good evening, Patrick. How are you? Good evening. I'm doing great. How are you? Oh, we are spooktacular, as we say here. Now, uh, I was reading the story, and i got to tell you, um, it <laughs> it definitely sounds like you had kind of, I don't want to say you hit the you hit the lottery when it comes to uh, getting demonically infested houses here. Yeah. Because uh, two back-to-back, I mean, uh, the fact that you came out of this still not only with your sanity but a stronger person to me is amazing yeah i'll tell you what um i was a little bit better equipped for 225th street 
um, thank God, because <laughs> uh, when I got in there and you know realized what was really going on, I had been through it once already, and I was able to protect myself and basically endure that environment for the three months I was there. But um, I'll tell you, it was uh, not a not a pleasant experience at all. Well, when you first open the book 225th Street, you know, you're talking about moving into this, the second of these two haunted houses, and you're, you're coming at it from a perspective where you're already uh, pretty, you, you have some degree of discernment, as you believe, and you also are pretty well versed in, in how to deal with these haunts, but what was it like for you when you underwent it the first time? Was, were you already aware of the paranormal? Had you already been studying these kind of things, or did you come into it as a result of having to deal with that first haunting? Yeah, it was definitely as a result of the first haunting. I've always believed in the paranormal. Um, I mean, I've always known, you know, there's stuff that we cannot explain. Uh, there's, uh, you know, I believe in, uh, I believe in the Bible. So I believe in evil spirits and angels and God and Satan and all those, you know, things. But I never, um, I never would have dreamed I was going to actually being a, be in a situation like what I found myself in. Um, so I, like I said, I did always, I had this belief in it. I knew it was real, but, um, the experience in Holmes County, Ohio, definitely, um, I gained a lot of experience from that and, um, it it gave me a better uh, perspective on how to uh, protect myself when I, you know, was at 225th street. The only question that I have though, is that if it did make you that much, um, stronger and that much more aware of it how come it wasn't more on your radar when you started the process of purchasing 225th street you know what that is a good question um a couple things um these kind of spirits evil spirits are able to hide they're very good at disguising themselves Mm -hmm. um they can hide and lead you to believe they're not there um but having a gift of discernment you know i did not um, discern anything when I went into the house. And when I, when I say a gift of discernment, I think everybody has gifts. And um, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, we're, we're able to discern things. Like, you know, we're intuitive. We know things sometimes that um, are for our good and they're to protect us. And, um, you know, I've had those experiences many times in my life. But um, in this house, it wasn't until I was actually in the house the very first night that I started wondering. You know, I I had some strange things happen. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, part of that, I believe, is possibly because, uh, for one thing, I was so happy to be out of the nightmare I had just endured. You know, um, I was so happy that I was just convincing myself that 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 chapter is over. Um, You're never going to experience that again. If you hear noises or weird things happen, it's nothing. You know, you're not crazy. Just forget it. You know, it's not, there's no way you could live in a haunted house twice in a row, you know. And uh, the other thing is, I do believe I was allowed to go through those experiences so I would share my story and help other people. You know, I think sometimes we have to go through bad things in life to gain, you know, a certain outlook and, and knowledge that we can share with others and help them. And I think that was another part of it. Well, and also, too, the realtor didn't bother to tell you about the history of the house when you, when you purchased it. Yeah. Um, the realtor who owned the house claimed that he knew. Uh, what I come to find out, not only was it haunted, but the reason why, or at least one of the reasons why, was uh, there was a suicide in the house in the 1950s. Um, the realtor swore that he never knew. 
but people in the town told me that he definitely did. No, they didn't. They didn't believe him. Um, the one uh, neighbor told me that he had spoken directly to um, this realtor's one of his the realtors under him, and that he had told her in no uncertain terms that that two houses in the area were haunted, and and that realtor owned both of them. And he told her, my neighbor had told her in no uncertain terms that they were haunted. And uh, I think he had even mentioned a suicide to her, but the realtor firm, which swore up and down they didn't know, um, that is what allowed me, though, to back out of purchasing the home. I was living there, uh, waiting for my mortgage to close. The realtor was kind enough to let me move in because he was flipping the house. He bought it at a sheriff's auction, and um, he did some repairs and was flipping it, and he was just looking to make a profit. Um, he figured, you know, I'm definitely getting my mortgage. Everything will be okay. This guy wants the house. And we just lost him. Still there? Still in the process of closing. And when I come to grips with what was going on in the house and the history of the house, um, I, you know, I... Uh-oh. Yeah, I think we just lost Patrick. Uh, Matt, if you want to try and give him a call on his uh, telephone line. Oh, we can try. Can you hear me okay? There, there we go. Yeah, we. It, it just said that the internet connection was lost. I don't know if that was okay? on our end. Can, can you hear us? Hello, Patrick? Can you guys hear me? We can hear you. Can you hear us? Hello? Okay, yeah, I think there's uh, definitely a problem with the internet. So if you just want to give him a call uh, on that line there, we'll just stick with that. Can you, know, you guys this is, hear me okay? Yeah, we're going to call you right back, Patrick, on the on the telephone line. Hi, still, can you hear us? Hi, this is fascinating radio. <laughs> All right, why don't, we, uh, why don't we just try and get him on the phone? And, uh, well, you know, but Moniz, that's something that we do hear a lot that happens where, you know, these aren't really given to you. This information isn't given to you up front by the realtor. I mean, I know in a lot of it states. It is by law now required. Yes, it's by law required. But still, you know, they can always go with that excuse of, well, we hadn't learned that yet. If it's. If. They know if any type of report has been given to the realtor and they know ahead of time and do not disclose it if asked, mm-hmm. repeat, if asked, then yes, they, they can be held accountable. And, in it, it. and that's we're talking about if there's been a murder there. In some states, you have to disclose if it's actually been accused of being haunted. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It, it, I'm not talking about just you know suicides or deaths in the place if they know. I'm talking about if they have a report of a place being haunted, whether it's been verified or not, mm-hmm. they are obligated by law to be able to inform a prospective buyer if they are asked. Well, they don't the, have to the, haunt, the haunting law is state to state. There's yeah. only a few states that really have that in place, but the, I'm pretty sure the murder law is universal yeah. across the country. All right. Uh, I think we've connect, reconnected with Patrick. Uh, are you there, Patrick? Yes, I'm back. All right, sorry about that. It's just uh, somebody's internet connection isn't strong enough to handle it, or something doesn't want us to talk to each other. No, I'm going to I'm going to tell you something. I wanted to ask you about that because I'm gonna, this is becoming a normal occurrence when I go on the air. Um, these kind of things happen pretty much every show anymore. Um, most of the time, there's no explanation for why it happens. Um, I believe it is because you know I'm not you know I'm not shy about saying what that what I came up against was demonic. Mm-hmm. And I'm not shy about, you know, sharing how to fight back. And I don't think that makes them very happy. Um, and I, I just say that. I've had many. I mean, this is probably the fourth show in a row that I've had things like this happen on. Well, we've already had one uh, exorcism, one blessing of the studio. And uh, let's just say I don't know if it took. 
<laughs> we were all right for a few years, but now it's starting to uh, to kick up again. So we're going to have Keith Johnson come back soon and uh, work his magic again. It is another 1950s board that's in here again, though. Different than the original one we started no, that's, with. That's the same board, right? No, I don't think it is. Yeah, it's, uh, it's fairly You may have to do that. <laughs> Well, now, you were saying, though, that the uh, the realtor actually owned another house that was haunted, uh, that people had accused of being haunted. So he, he knew this. He heard these stories, and he still chose not to get, share this information with you when you were uh, prospectively buying the house. Yeah, he swears that he did not know. But, um, you know, I can't, I'll take his word for it that he didn't. But, I mean, I'm just, I can tell you that other people told me they, they, they think he did. But that was what allowed me to back out of the purchase was because the uh, suicide had not been disclosed to me. And um, obviously, uh, now I, I will say the former owners had never talked to each other. None of them had shared with the other former owners that they had a haunting experiences in the house. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, none of them ever even shared with the other former owners that they that there was a suicide. They all pretty much wanted to sell the house, so they didn't say anything. They sold it, you know. And then someone else bought it and walked right into a nightmare, you know. So that's pretty much how it went. The only, the only former owner who, who uh, you know, did not go through that actually uh, was the owner before me. And she, had, she endured a terrible environment, terrible experiences, and uh, she had actually lost the house. Well, what I thought was the most interesting is that when you started researching the history of it and you started contacting uh, former residents of the house, you were finding out that not only were they having experiences, but they were having similar experiences to what was happening to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, multiple experiences from multiple people of a uh, hooded figure. Um, my experience with it, I actually did see its face. Uh, I had a vision early on in the house, and again, I, I, te- I, I you know, I, I believe that goes back to the having a gift of discernment. But um, I had, I had, I have to say it was a vision because it just came out of nowhere and it was in, it was in my mind's eye. Um, on a night after I found that my bed had moved by itself, um, and there was no explanation for how the bed moved, um, I convinced myself that my cousin must have done it earlier that day, and I, I just thought I'm going to ask him tomorrow, and he'll say, "Oh yeah, I did. I'm sorry, I forgot to put it back." So I convinced myself, you know, because I'm, I'm, you know. Definitely trying to make myself not uh, be afraid and not think there could be something in this house. You know, like who in the world could have two haunted houses in a row? And um, so I convinced myself there was an explanation for the bed moving. And then that night when I went, I mean, just a few minutes after I found the bed was moved and straightened it and went to bed, I had a vision of my staircase and I could see a hooded, it was a very crystal clear vision. Um, I mean, very vivid colors, razor sharp definition. And I could see the staircase outside my bedroom door, and there was a hooded figure coming up the staircase. And it looked like a, a very skinny old man. Um, he was so slightly round-shouldered. He had his head down. He had a very sinister grin on his face. As, um, as I, you know, researched more of the house that had a definite connection <laughs> to the suicide, um, it was not the gentleman who had committed suicide, though, but I believe it was something that was there that probably drove him to do it. Um, it, I, I believe it was an evil spirit that probably tormented him as well. Um, but uh, multiple accounts of these hooded figures in the house with different people who had lived there, um, uh, multiple accounts of a shadow person that was about seven feet tall, uh, that was experienced by, my goodness, 
my the former owner before me saw it multiple times. Um, my mother saw it in the kitchen of the house. It walked past her real fast uh, from the dining area towards the back bedroom. Um, and uh, my girlfriend actually experienced it in the house as well when we were in the kitchen one day. So there were there were lots of things like that that repeated. They happened over and over. Well, you know, and while I was there, that's one of the things that was coming up in the chat room. You know, when when we started talking with you, is people are wondering. You hear that somebody lived in back-to-back haunted places, back-to-back possible demonic infestations, and the first logic is that, oh, well, it must be following him from one to the other. But that's what's important is that it was the prior residents who were experiencing the same thing. So whatever it was there was bothering them, harassing them before you had even entered the picture. Yeah, definitely. And you know what? That is the rational question. I mean, it's it's, it's only reasonable to assume did did something follow him from the past uh, house he was in. And I knew it didn't immediately because I knew that that first experience had ended in a uh, very successful exorcism of that house and property. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was very confident nothing followed me, but um, as it turned out, like you said, uh, the, the hauntings at 225th Street were going on long before I was there, uh, probably long before I was even born. And I mean, just in uh, this is of course purely speculative on your uh, on your part here. But do you feel like there's uh, those negative forces that were there that actually caused that suicide to happen, or do you think they're they're the result of that suicide that happened in 1954? I think it's a little bit of both. I I think I know more about what all led up to the suicide, but I cannot disclose it because I can't prove mm-hmm. it. That's sure. something I believe I am discerning. Um, uh, but either way, uh, clearly the gentleman who killed himself was a, was a tormented individual. Um, he was an extreme perfectionist. Um, he had actually built a house uh, in the 1920s, 1924. Um, he was like, I believe this is part of a curse, in my opinion. He was so much a perfectionist that he didn't. He built the whole house two rows of brick thick. He double-bricked the entire house. That's what you normally would see on, like, a commercial building. You would not see that on a home normally. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything he did, it had to be exact. And it basically, that drove him crazy, too. I think there was more going on than that. But um, the I believe there, was, there were spirits in that house before he ever did that, before he ever committed suicide. I almost wonder if he... If he you know, was tormented enough by them that that's why he had to take his own life because it was the only way to kind of free himself from them. Again, purely speculation. Yeah, it is speculation. And I will say this, you know, if you're a perfectionist to that point, not only are you, I mean, that's very close to in reality being self-condemning as well because nothing that you do is even good enough. If you're that much of a perfectionist, nothing is ever good enough. And it is, you know, it it could easily make a person start feeling self-condemnation that, Nothing they do is good enough, and that could spiral into you know all kinds of issues. I think that played a part of it, definitely. So as you're researching this and you're finding out more of the history of the house, I mean, are you instantly uh, thinking in your head that you have to conduct another exorcism, or is that something that you're hoping is a, a last resort type of approach? No, I pretty much, I'll, I'll tell you, when, when my neighbor came over one day, I'd had several experiences and my neighbor, uh, in the book, I, I did change the names of the people in the book because they, I, I respect these people and they're good people. And I realized, you know, I, I didn't change my own name. I potentially could be called a nut, you know, crazy and everything else. But I changed their names out of respect to them. But um, mm-hmm. the gentleman I, I called Steve, he was my neighbor. He came over one day and uh, he, he 
shared some good news with me about how helpful everyone in the community was and and uh, you know if I needed any help with anything just let somebody know and I thanked him and he said well that's the good news now for the bad news and I knew immediately when he said that I knew exactly what he was going to say and I interjected I said uh, you're going to tell me my house is haunted and his, his eyes got big his mouth dropped open and he said yeah, man, your house is haunted. He said some dude killed himself in your basement a long time ago. And at that point, um, I pretty much knew it. And I, I was like, I knew it. You know, I've been downplaying all these little things that have been happening, but I knew it. And um, so I started researching, started contacting the other former owners, and I got enough information early on, even from, you know, the, just the first family that lived there, that I knew an exorcism had to be done. And uh, we attempted an exorcism on the house, and uh, the exorcism was not successful. And there's reasons for that, you know, and that's the one thing I think I, I'm sorry to say I believe most of the church today is asleep at the wheel. They are not doing what the church is called to do. And um, the, the people that even believe most of the time in the church that believe in exorcism they assume that if you just say, in Jesus' name, come out or leave or whatever, the demons immediately flee. And the reality is, you know, that's dependent upon why they're there in the first place. And in, in the situation with 225th Street, there were reasons, there were strongholds in that house, and there were things that were keeping them there. And um, therefore, the exorcism was not successful. And I later, through more research, determined uh, several reasons why I believe the exorcism was unsuccessful. But very strange things happened during the attempted exorcism. Um, one of the least of the things that happened was that everybody, when we were done, you know, I can't say if the house itself had actually dropped, if the temperature had actually dropped, or if it was all of us. But I know when spirits manifest, you know, that a lot of times people feel cold, and sometimes it's the actual temperature drops, and sometimes it's that the people just feel cold because the spirits are drawing heat energy away from their bodies. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know which it was, but we all agreed it, it felt like it was a bone-chilling cold inside that house. I mean, it was uh, it was frigid, you know. And uh, we all experienced that that night after we attempted the exorcism, and uh, multiple experiences while, while we while we tried to do the exorcism as well. And, uh, and did that exorcism make things worse? I think it stayed about the same, because I think what they found out, what the spirits in that house found out early on, probably even within the first day of me being there, was this guy is not like the other people. Mm -hmm. He knows something. Because um, I knew even just the way I would pray when I started getting creeped out is not how most people would even pray, you know? And I think they knew early on. But that night... When we attempted the exorcism, we all were in agreement that what was there was was kind of like on the ropes. We had them on the run, but they did not have to leave, and so therefore they didn't. And um, I think if anything, they knew we don't want this idiot here. I think the spirits were more like we want the, we want him just to leave, and uh, before he figures out how to get get rid of us for good. And uh, I wouldn't say it got worse. I would say it continued. Now, I may have been protected from other things, because other people that lived there, there were uh, very strange deaths. Uh, there was one death in particular that um, I, I believe was completely uh, linked to the house. There was an accident. Um, I actually think that individual stepfather also died while he lived there. He did die of natural causes, but he had been torment, tormented while he lived there. 
and it turned out he was bleeding internally and didn't even know it, and that's what led to his death. Um, the woman who lived there before me, she thought that the entities in the house were trying to kill her on multiple occasions. Wow. Uh, she had very strange experiences, um, including a gas valve in the basement was opened wide open. And I, when I say that, I shouldn't say it was opened wide open. It was opened enough that the house filled with gas. The whole house was full of gas. Um, her son, who had just died uh, after moving into the house, his fiance was there with her, and they both started smelling. Uh, they didn't know what they were smelling. They smelled fumes. And the fiance, you know, went looking to try to find out where it was coming from and found that that valve in the basement had been opened. Um, the woman that that happened to was on oxygen, so she didn't even smell the gas. I mean, it was completely full. The house was full of gas, and she didn't even realize it because she was breathing oxygen. And uh, she also had multiple experiences where she felt that, you know, the spirits, while she slept, had manipulated her oxygen uh, in an attempt to, at, at the very least, to scare her and possibly worse, to kill her. Just sounds more and more like this place needs to be burned down and turned into a parking lot. I'll tell you, um, I, I do feel like it's the entire, I, I know what room the suicide happened in. I know there's some strong legal rights in that room for the spirits to stay, but I do believe it's like the entire house is defiled because there are experiences throughout the entire house. Now, did you find that this was, uh, was this more intense or was it not as bad as, as the first uh, home that you lived in? It was different. It's hard to explain. The first haunting I experienced was um, due more to really old curses and uh, also some witchcraft that was being practiced against me. And, uh, you know, a lot of people will say right away, well, you're a Christian. Witchcraft won't work against a Christian. That's crazy, you know. Well, here's the reality. Um, in that in- environment I endured in the first house in Holmes County, Ohio, all you, uh, you know, a Satanist or a witch or whatever, if you want to try to curse somebody and you know, okay, they're a Christian, I, but so I don't know if this curse is going to work or not, the main thing you have to do is, Get them to be involved in some kind of sin, and as soon as you do that, the door is flung wide open and the curses work. The big thing for me was dealing with forgiveness issues, because I, I started realizing what the people in that community were doing, and um, I also had, I believe that that house played a part in me, in my, me uh, losing my marriage. I ended up going through a divorce during that time, which was extremely traumatic, um, so there's all these issues that I was dealing with on top of the paranormal, and those are issues that are it's very easy to hold unforgiveness. As soon as you do that, if they're cursing you, it's going to work. So that haunting was very different. Both of them were demonic in origin, but that was a very different style haunting than 225th Street. Um, both of them had extremely terrifying, uh, I've had encounters that are just terrifying, you know. When I tell people about some of my experiences sometimes, I'll be talking to them, and, and I'll just, it's kind of just matter-of-fact to me. I've, I've already lived through it, and I've experienced it, and I understand it. And I kind of forget that they never have. <laughs> and I'll be, I'll be telling somebody, and all of a sudden I'm looking at them, and they just look terrified, and I'm like, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to scare you. Just another you know, night for me, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, see, so you guys have experienced that stuff, so you kind of know where I'm coming from with that. But the average person who has not, you know, it is, uh, it, it, it is terrifying. Um, and it's terrifying for me. To, I, I don't ever care to deal with that stuff again, you know. But um, the hauntings were very different, and um, it was just because the the uh, 
doors that had been opened in each situation were very different. So there were different types of demonic spirits there. So it was kind of, that, that allowed the hauntings to be very different. Well, you, you mentioned the demonic, though, being tied into both. And, and what makes it so that you're convinced that it definitely is something demonic and not just some sort of negative, you know, formerly human entity? Um, well, as far as with the Holmes County incident, I know what I found out right before we performed the successful exorcism. Now, number one, the exorcism was successful, and I believe that's pretty good indication because we were going after demons when we did the exorcism in that uh, in, uh, situation. Um, but I was able to nar- narrow down that that problem was coming from a curse that had been placed on that ground in the 1790s after the Greenville Treaty. And I lived not far from the treaty line. And what I had found out was that uh, that ground had been cursed by the Indians because they had to give it up. And that started the curse. So there was like a combination of an ancient curse. And when I say ancient, you know, a couple hundred years. In American history, that's ancient. And um, then also the people in that community, it was an Amish community. And most people think the Amish are, you know, God-fearing Christian people. And if you really get into what they believe and what they practice, it is not. And uh, that is, I, I had two different attacks coming against me. Um, both were, you know, I consider demonic because one's coming from a curse, the other one is coming from curses from modern day uh, witchcraft that was being practiced at that time. In 225th Street, um, I, I knew, it was like I discerned very clearly that this is, um, this is something demonic. And, you know, with the hooded figures and uh, shadow people, you know, like tall shadow people, I saw a black mass at one point in the house. I mean, I think that all lends itself very, very heavily to the demonic origin theory, you know. I, I believe it wholeheartedly that it was, what I was experiencing there was all demonic. Sure. There's a couple questions from the chat room on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. Uh, one of the uh, questions is, uh, you, you had mentioned about the Amish and not being what we think that it is. What, what do you think the Amish are? Okay, they are a they are a religious group. Um, they do use a Bible, but they mix. And this is what I will be getting into. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you up front: Nightmare in Holmes County will be controversial, but I will back up every one of my claims with with documentation. They practice a form of witchcraft known as powwow, which has elements of the Bible in it mixed with Indian witchcraft and Old World witchcraft from Germany. And uh, so they may. Uh, they may say, you know, some do something in the name of the Trinity or something like that, but at the same time, they're they're doing that while they're uh, using witchcraft curses and charming and casting spells and things like that. That is rampant in the Amish community. Um, so, in my opinion, after living there for eight years, they are a cult. And in my opinion, after living there eight years, I believe they're a demonic cult. Uh, they they. The, what the basic elements of Christianity they do not believe, they do not adhere to, um, but they do use a Bible. And so it is misleading, um, but, uh, you know, I, I've talked to many uh, people who formerly were Amish, and they've told me everything that, that, you know, they've said, I don't know where you got your information, but you're right. You know, whoever told you that, it's true. And uh, a lot of it was what I just discerned at first, and then when I would talk to more people that were former Amish, they would tell me, yes, that's all true. I experienced all those things when I was Amish. Um, there are uh, several places I know of in Holmes County that I'm aware of where Satanism is practiced, uh, various forms of witchcraft are practiced. I have pictures that will be in that book, in, in, in Nightmare in Holmes County, of uh, animal sacrifices that I found, 
um, were, uh, you know, a, a dead dog hanging from a tree by its feet in one of the places where they have these, these uh, ceremonies. Um, I found uh, in that same area, I found a, uh, a, a steer skull hanging from a tree uh, about a year earlier. Um, so they are definitely into some very dark religious practices. Well, you said that that book was going to cause a lot of controversy. It's already causing a lot of controversy in the chat room <laughs> from uh, from some of the uh, the loyal followers in there who are just amazed at some of the uh, the claims that you're making. So we'll have to talk about that part more when uh, Nightmare in Holmes County comes out in 2012. But because yes. basically we're we're running short on time here tonight, and I know that that's we're opening a door there that's going to take a lot of time to really get into the meat of the matter, but. Another question that uh, came in the chat room was uh, somebody wanted to know if when you conducted these exorcisms, if you felt the need to have someone from the clergy present or if you felt that your belief was strong enough uh, to carry out the, the, uh, the exorcism. Um, you know, I don't think it's ever a bad idea to have a minister involved. I don't think that's ever a bad idea, but I don't think it's absolutely necessary either. Um, in the Great Commission, uh, in the book of uh, Mark, in the Bible, uh, Jesus, right, one of the last things he talked about before he ascended to heaven, was that, you know, those who believe in his name will cast out demons. And that goes for, you know, if, if you've repented of your sins and accepted him as your Savior, you, at that point, have authority over unclean spirits. So, you know, it's obviously a minister is a spiritual leader, so they're, you know, that's definitely a good idea if they're willing to help you, but I don't think it's absolutely necessary. I will say sometimes, in fact, pretty much all the time, it's, it's a good idea to have as many people that, Share your beliefs, praying in agreement with you when you're doing an exorcism, because there's more power in that, you know. But I don't think you necessarily have to have a, a, a ordained minister or clergy present. What about somebody of a different faith that's going for the same objective? Um, I wouldn't, and the, and the reason I say that is, um, and everything I do like this, and I've done exorcisms on people and on places and that, I'm always addressing this in, in Jesus' name. And so... From that perspective, that's where I'm drawing my strength. No spirit ever has to listen to me because I said it. They have to listen to it because I said it to the authority that he gave, that Jesus gave me when I accepted him as my Savior. So when I say that, um, I'm putting all my, all my eggs in, it, in his basket, basically. Um, I put, that's where I'm going to have the authority to fight back, and, and I, don't, you know, I don't believe I need to involve any other religious uh, systems. But say you were going to help another person that is of a different faith. That's mm-hmm. that's why I'm asking the question. Yes, Suppose yes. you went to I, somebody that's you know having a problem with a demonic infestation in there, say Jewish. Would you be opposed no, to having a rabbi there? They could be present, but I think the person would see through through the uh, you know if you stuck it out and got to the bottom of what was going on with the infestation. I think the person would clearly see that there is authority in Jesus' name, and you know what. Um, Maybe I should think about that. You know, maybe I should consider that. But I will tell you, the Jewish people do have a deep belief in these spirits. Yeah, uh, well, uh, I know. <laughs> they're very, they were very accurate in what they believed, you know. Um, you know, even with the, the demoniac that had, you know, uh, thousands of demons in him that went into the pigs in the Bible. Um, that, a Not lot to that, mention Jesus was a Jew, you know. Yeah, those absolutely. Absolutely. And I do, I do believe that I'm, I'm on board fully with the with the Jewish people, believe me. I just, um, I, I'm always going to, anything I do in, in the spiritual realm, I'm going to, you know, do it through Jesus' name. Because, I, like I said, nothing has to ever listen to me because I said it, you know. I have to say it through his authority. 
All right. Well, we are coming up on the end of the show. Uh, but again, the book is called 225th Street, and uh, the forthcoming prequel is called Nightmare in Holmes County. Uh, you can get the first one from crownofthornspublishing.com, and of course the second one will be up there as soon as it's available. And uh, you can also get the Kindle version at amazon.com. And uh, I have to say, though, by getting this story out, I think a lot of more a lot more people are going to realize that uh, that they they may have encountered spirits in their house, but the people that I'm worried about are those who move into 225th Street <laughs> in the ensuing uh, years. Have have you had any contact with the current residents? Yes, I did. The, the realtor sold them the house, and he had to tell them. That, I mean, it, it got out that, you know, I, what I was saying, and uh, he had to tell them. So he, he told them that there was a suicide and that there were reports of the house being haunted, but he did it in a manner that made me look crazy. So they bought the house and moved in. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, in their first six months in the house, um, they called the police three times themselves. Now, th- w- what they called for was things would disappear. It would appear someone broke into their car or their house or their garage or their car or stole their credit cards or whatever. And they're always unsolved. The crimes always remain unsolved. Um, that is part of the history of the house. When you live in that house, your stuff gets stolen. You never really know who did it. All kinds of weird uh, situations like that happen, along with the full-on paranormal experiences as well. Oh, well. So I think whether they know it or not, <laughs> there's still stuff there. Well, I can tell you, you've definitely started a lot of uh, controversy in the chat room. They're planning on hanging around and discussing it more uh, after the show goes off the air in a few minutes. So if you want to jump into the chat room on Spooky TV, Patrick, uh, you're more than welcome to uh, share your thoughts with them there. But okay. we are we are coming up on the end of the program, but we will be back next week. We're going to talk about some Halloween campfire stories with uh, Jim Harold. Uh, those of you who listen to his podcast, you know what Jim's all about, and he's got a new book out about some campfire tales for Halloween. And I promise this time that when we say we're going to be sharing some scary stories for Halloween, I mean it. Not like the last time we promised that we were telling scary ghost stories for Halloween and we pulled off a War on the war of the World hoax that uh, a lot of people definitely fell for. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, we practically did it word for word from the old, from and, the old one. And some people caught on. Some people caught on, but a lot of people didn't until uh, until that moment when we cut right to the original War of the Worlds. So uh, if you haven't ever checked that show out, definitely go back into the archives on SpookySouthCoast.com and check it out. Also on Wareham Radio, which is a new venture that I've started uh, with Jay Harper, if you go to WarehamRadio.com, we run old-time radio ghost stories and mysteries and all kinds of things uh, a couple nights a week. We also have old Gene Shepard shows. We have jazz. We have barbershop music. We have everything that you could possibly imagine on WarehamRadio.com. So uh, definitely check that out uh, because we're gonna probably we're gonna be running some something special from Cape Cod Mystery Theater uh, coming up on Halloween. But uh, we might also run the War of the Worlds and also uh, the Possession of the Church, which was the old time radio drama that we did here live in the studio a few years ago. So all that's coming up on WarehamRadio.com. But we'll talk to you next week here on Spooky South Coast again when our guest will be Jim Harold and we'll talk about all things Halloween uh, coming up and. Just stay tuned to Facebook, to our website, to everything. We'll keep updating it with how the ticket sales are going for Dead of Winter, but uh, you don't want to take too much time to get your tickets for those because they are running out fast. So until next week, for Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you First, to- with local news, talk, and sports.